Lord, as we've uh, reflected this year on this incredible letter, um, a letter from Paul on the one hand, but Lord, we know by your spirit, you have truth not only for the church in Corinth to hear and understand and obey, but, but us as well. And so Lord, we thank you for your grace in giving us your word. And as we um, seek to live it out, Lord, enable us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever had a trophy cabinet when you were, I was going to say young, but some of you may still have trophy cabinets. Um, I know our mate Pete's off running a marathon today. Um, that's, that just blows my mind. I don't like running the length of a hallway, let alone, <laughs> let alone a marathon. Um, and he's good at it. Like he might, he might get a trophy for it. Um, do you ever get a trophy when you're a kid? Or as an adult? Ever get one? Raise your hand. Well, you don't have to raise your hand. There's some people, if you're really into trophies, you know, it's not just raise your hand. People will be like, I, uh, I've still got mine, actually. If you'd like to come over, I've got it on display. Um, I, I didn't get many trophies when I was a kid. I was sort of an um, all-rounder. I didn't excel incredibly at nearly any sport or things that they gave trophies out for. If they gave trophies out for schoolwork, I just wasn't in the running for that. Um, but I got a couple of trophies. I got a couple of trophies. And I was not a huge sort of like put them on the shelf sort of thing. I'd get the trophy and go, that's cool. And, but I did put it into a drawer somewhere. Um, I remember years later moving somewhere and getting out you know, my old drawers and old boxes, and I found these trophies. And um, it brought back a lot of memories of what they represented. Um, I'd be interested to hear about a trophy that you've received. What did you get it for, if you got one? Or maybe it was a certificate of some sort. My kids bring home certificates from school. Um, they love them going onto the fridge. I don't know why the fridge is the universal display cabinet for all certificates and artwork, but the fridge is the place where if you make the fridge door you know, for the week, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, what's something cool that you received an award for? Maybe as a school, youth, maybe as an adult. Maybe you've received some type of um, accolade or award in your schooling, uh, in, your, in your work life. What's something that you've received an award for? Are you proud of it? Are you proud of it? I mean, if you get an award, if you, are you proud of your achievement? Generally, generally. And some people don't shove them into drawers. Some people put them on a shelf, right? Get an awards cabinet, even. I would have loved to have had an entire room of all the things that, I've, that I didn't actually win, but it would have been good. Um, you may have noticed along the, the year, um, sometimes in small text on the bottom of a slide, um, this entire series that we've been looking at, we, we've called a trophy of grace. A trophy of grace. And as we wrap up the series in 1 Corinthians, what I'd like to do today is tell you a little bit about why I called this series a trophy of 
of grace. Now, we've already seen um, a good overview, eight minutes or so, um, with a bit of a breakdown of what this entire series has been about. And in that, we saw that there were some significant problems in the church at Corinth, wasn't there? Um, there were some divisions around personalities, around sort of your um, celebrity preacher, um, pastor type of scenario. And there were people who were saying, listen, I'm a better Christian because I follow Peter or I follow Paul. And um, if only you could see how great they were, you could be a better Christian too. Um, and there was divisions that were occurring because of that. There was divisions and problems in the church because the church there had become sexually compromised in their behaviour. There was division around the idea of food and how it can be used and how it should be um, addressed and how it should be thought of as a Christian. There was division around how we gather and the ways that we gather and what we do while we gather. There was division around the resurrection of Jesus and how important it was. And all of those things existed in the church in Corinth. And that's a lot of divisions. A lot of reasons for people to not get along and a lot of reasons for there to be infighting. We've also discovered that in some shape or form, some of these same ideas can still cause divisions today. They can still cause conflict today. They can still cause problems today. And I'm sure that there were other things that happened in Corinth. Paul writes another whole letter to them. Um, in fact, he wrote another letter as well that there is no record of, which, apart from a reference to. So we know that another letter to the church in Corinth existed as well, but we don't have a copy of it in our Bibles. What I love about this letter is that Paul doesn't just say, hey guys, here are all the ways that you're rubbish. Deal with it, all right? He doesn't do that. He does name it, he does call it out, but he very quickly shows how the gospel of grace corrects each of these issues. He gives the, the gospel and our unity that we have in Christ as being the way that we can find unity in the church, especially when there's been division around personalities. The gospel of grace becomes a motivation for sexual integrity. The gospel of grace in Christ gives us power to love others more than ourselves as we see the way that Jesus sacrificially loved us. And he finishes, of course, with that passage that we've been looking at recently, which shows the gospel of grace gives us the victory over death and grave as we find it in Christ. So what I want to do this morning is keep all of that in mind and then step back to this idea. What do we do with a church like Corinth? What do we think about a church like Corinth? In fact, if we want to bring it a little bit close to home, as we sort of be fairly raw and blunt with ourselves as a church, it's pretty easy, it doesn't take very much effort at all to start finding some of our weaknesses, to start finding some of our failings as a church, maybe. And even to draw it closer to home, it doesn't take very long, does it, to look in the mirror for a little while and start to realise and see all the ways that you might feel you are weak or failing as a follower of Jesus. 
all the things that you want to do, all the desires that you have that you would love to live out as a faithful follower of Jesus, and yet you know that there are these glaring problems that exist, Uh, ongoing temptations or sins that seem to just trip you up time after time, or the way that you react when you don't want to. And What do we do with the fact that there are still struggles still problems, still hardships that we might face as Christians individually, as our church here in Raymond Terrace, or even a church like Corinth? Well, to answer that, Paul wrote this letter. But I want to try and summarise it in another letter that he wrote, and it was to the church in Ephesus. So I want to read to you, and I'd love for you to turn to as well, Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favourite passages in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 9. And I would say this is the Ephesian filter that we need to be looking through. So we want to look at the church in Corinth or the church here in Raymond Terrace or our own lives. And I want you this morning to look at them through the Ephesian filter. So let's read together. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, starting from verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also." But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. We'll pause there. I want you just to look at three phrases from this passage with me for a little while this morning. The first one is this, you were, you were, all right? Each one of these phrases is going to help shift this passage through in the nine verses that we just read together. In verses one down to about verse four or verse three, we have this description that Paul gives, which is very humbling. It's a real sort of like, Um, If you are thinking a little bit too highly of yourself this morning, we'll just have a listen to Paul. He'll take you down a peg or two, all right? And this is what he's been doing in the letter to the church in Corinth a bit, right? One of the problems in Corinth was that people were starting to feel pretty puffed up about how great they were as Christians, how spectacular they were, how gifted they were, how important they were. And a lot of this letter that we've read to the church in Corinth is Paul just going, don't get too excited about yourself. And here, as we read through the Ephesian filter, 
Paul lets us know where we've all come from. You were, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's not a lot of forward movement from dead, right? That tends to be the the word that we use um, for finality. Whether we're talking about the human life, our human bodies, but we tend to use it for other things. Um, You could use it, let's just say hypothetically, you bought yourself a boat and you thought it was a good bargain. And hypothetically, you decide to take it for a test run with your family, with your wife, and let's just say two of your children. And you're out on the water, and then you hear the motor splutter. And then it coughs, and it doesn't restart. And your children are all excited. And you look at your wife, and she's even more excited, just hypothetically speaking. And one of your children might say, Dad, is it dead? Right? What do they mean? They mean, are we rowing back to shore? Yes. Hypothetically speaking, we had to row back to shore. Hopefully it's not dead, dead. Right? We can fix this, I hope. But we use the term dead to define that's it. That there's no more, no more to this adventure that's going to happen now. Paul says, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We all were. And then he goes on to make sure that we understand what that means, right? Listen, you previously walked according to the ways of this world. All of us did. The way that you walk according to the way of this world is also according to the rule of the power of the air. And in case you're thinking, well, what's that mean? Paul says it's the spirit now working in the disobedient. We, we all walked that way. We all did. He says, we too all previously lived among them. Our fleshly desires, we carried out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts And that put us all in a position where the reason why we could say we are spiritually dead or were was by the fact that that places us as children under wrath. Because the wages of sin is death. And God looks at that way of life and he says there is no future for that. Certainly no future with God in that. And there's not one single person in this room this morning, and it doesn't matter how many trophies you thought of when I started by saying, what trophies did you get? There are no amount of trophies that can outweigh this position of death. None. You, you can't rack up enough awards. You can't fill your fridge enough with enough certificates to sort of ba- balance out or counteract this position of death. It may be this morning that you may know it, or maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't realised it yet, but maybe you're still walking in the way of this world under the power of the ruler of the air, the spirit now working in those who are disobedient. Maybe you've never discovered 
that there is life after death. But each one of us in this room this morning, each person individually as you look in the mirror, each person as we look at each other across the room this morning, or as we reflect back on a church like Corinth, none of us this morning can raise our hands and say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Paul just says we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. So you were. That's my first phrase. My second phrase is one of my favorites in the Bible, but God. All right? But God. You were, you were dead. You were walking in disobedience. You were walking, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh, of your own desires, of the way that you view the world, of your own superiority or your own, whatever it might be. You were, but God. But God. Verse 4. But God. What's this God that we're thinking about? What's he like? Paul describes it there. Well, the first thing you need to know about the but God statements is that it's always talking about a God who is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Why? Well, he tells us, right? Because of his great love that he had for us. So God was not content to watch us wallow in our own death. It wasn't content just to leave us in the finality of our own disobedience. He certainly wasn't willing to do that for the church in Corinth. Praise God, he's not willing to do that for the church in Raymond Terrace. And when you look in the mirror each morning and you are faced with the accusations of the enemy telling you all the ways that you've failed, you know what you can say? You can say, I agree. I agree, but God. You're right. I failed miserably, but God. Yeah, I know that my sin is still tangling me at times, but God. Yeah, I know that I've got a past that I'm ashamed of. I don't want anybody else to know, but God. Thank God for the but God statements of the Bible. This God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us. Now, what I want you to do is have a look in verse 5, and then I want you to have a look in verse 6, and there are two statements about an action that God took. All right, what did God do because he was so rich in mercy and because of his great love that he had for us? The first one's found in verse 5. He made us alive. All right, he made us alive. Remember, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. There was a finality about our existence. That this way of life was a life of disobedience that led to a complete separation between us and God. And then verse 4 says, hey, but God steps in. And what did he do? Well, the first thing he did, he made you alive. If you are found in Christ this morning, you are more alive than you have ever been in all your life. He made us alive. He did that with Christ. Paul says, even though we were dead in trespasses. Right? He made us alive in Christ, even though. That's the sort of power that we have of the God that we worship this morning. The God who can bring the dead to life. We see pictures of that in the Bible and we read, we read those stories, don't we? We love that story of you know, his friend Lazarus. Remember that story when Jesus was 
here and he, he got word that his friend, his friend, not just some stranger, not just some person that was important to somebody else, this was the friend of Jesus, a very dear and special person to him. And he was dying. And Jesus didn't rush. He waited, it says, where he was for a few days. And, and then he went. And by the time he got there, everyone was saying, Jesus, if only you'd got here earlier. If only Lazarus had died. It's also, for you um, Bible trivia fans, you'll know this, the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. I think it's a profound thing. Why did Jesus weep? Jesus knew what he was about to do. He knew that Lazarus was going to walk out of that grave in a moment. He knew that people's mouths would drop open and that they would just be, you know, their, their death songs, their dirges, their lamenting was going to be all of a sudden shifted and they're going to be singing songs of praise and deliverance and they might have been reading, you know, Psalm 23 together and reminding or Psalm 22, but God, you have delivered me. Or the passage from Samuel, oh God, you are my rock and my deliverer. They were going to sing all of those songs, but in that very moment, Jesus looked at the situation and Jesus wept. But what did it take? What did it take to change the situation? Lazarus, come out. Death didn't have a choice, did it? When God speaks, the dead are raised. And we talked about that in, in the letter to Corinthians, didn't we? The joy and the surety of our resurrection, not just as a spiritual concept, but the fact that every person that is in Christ, every person that we know and have loved and we've lost, will one day again, in bodily form, be raised. We'll see them. We'll have eyes for Jesus, but I can tell you what, there'll be plenty of people in heaven that you'll be glad to just sort of say, I'm so glad to see you. I've missed you. The dead in Christ will be raised. But that's already started. There's a lot of people in this room, a lot of people in this room, you've already experienced one of the greatest miracles that there ever has been. Maybe you think this morning, you know what, I, if we have a testimony Sunday, I don't really have much of a testimony. You know, those people, I can remember as a kid going to testimony, we used to have testimony nights. We should do a testimony night. Let's do that. We used to have a testimony night where people would just get together and share the stories of how they came to know Jesus. I used to love it when we had visiting, you know, visiting people that would come and they would just be like, man, I was an addict. I was drunk in the gutter. You know, I was this and I was that. And when I was a kid, man, I was just like, oh, they're pretty, pretty amazing stories. And then they would get to the but God moment and it would be exciting and you'd look at the way that God had changed their life now and... And for me, I grew up in a, like a missionary kid, pastor kid house. I was a, oh, I can't say I was a good boy, but relatively, I wasn't passing out in the gutter type of boy. And, and I used to think, man, I got a, such a boring testimony. A boring testimony. And maybe you think that this morning. Maybe you're thinking, I've got a pretty boring testimony. Are you serious? You were dead. You were dead doesn't matter if you were passed out in the gutter or whether you grew up thinking that you were a really righteous kid. You were dead. 
And God said, come out. And now you're alive. You don't have a boring testimony. You have one of the most amazing stories that this world has ever needs to hear. That God raises dead people and gives them new life. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace, Paul yells at the church. It's got a big exclamation mark. It should do in your Bible. If it doesn't, switch translations. (laughs) All right? I'm serious. Because this should be the most emphatic statement that we hear. You are saved by grace. He's not finished. Verse 6 says, He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That's not future tense if you look at that. Right? That's past tense. When you were saved, when God made you alive, He lifted you up with Jesus and He seated you with Jesus in the heavens. That's your location right now. That's your spiritual reality. I know it doesn't feel like it, but our bodies are still just trying to catch up with what God's already done. You are already in heavenly places. When God looks at you, he just sees everything that he's done and he says, this is my son. This is my daughter. And I'm in well pleased. I'm well pleased. So we had, you were. Then we had, but God. Verse 7. So that. So that. That's the next phrase I want you to note, take note of. You were, but God, so that. Why did God do all of this? Well, that's what Paul wants to answer. So that. So that in the coming ages, he, that's, being, that's God, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You might not realise this, but the church in Corinth, as messed up as we think they were, and they had some serious things going on there, right? I mean, some stuff there that if you were visiting Corinth and you were looking for a new church to go to, you would have got there and more than likely... The first week or two, you might have thought, man, this, guy, this place is pumping, right? The Spirit's really here. Woo! But then, then the veneer comes off, the varnish starts to peel, and there was a lot of rotten stuff going on underneath the surface. You would have probably thought, this is not a healthy place to be. I need to look for another church. That's what they were like. But remember, but, but God, but God saves by grace so that the church in Corinth, the church in Raymond Terrace, you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you know him, known by him, for all the, the mess that still goes on, for all the, the disappointments in your life as a follower of Jesus, for all the ways that you still feel like you don't measure up, 
You know those moments when you, in the quietness of your own heart, compare yourself to with even just other Christians that you know? Maybe they come here to this church and you look at their life and you think, I just don't measure up. I'll never be a, a, a really good Christian like they are. For all that, when God saves, and he saves by grace. And when God saves because he says, this is a dead person that needs resuscitation. And he calls them to life again in himself. Why does that happen? Well, verse 7 tells us that it happens so that you might become God's trophy cabinet. Have you ever thought about that? You, this church, the church in Corinth, are all a part of God's trophy cabinet. We read it again. In the coming ages, he's going to display the immeasurable riches of his grace. So when, when anyone in the universe, any power that sets itself up to be something apart from God or come to accuse God and say, well, God, you tell me something special that you've done, he's going to turn to his display cabinet. And in that display cabinet is a messed up church from Corinth, a somewhat iffy church from Raymond Terrace, and a whole bunch of individuals that look a bit tarnished, look a bit battered, look a bit worn, and God's going to direct their attention, anyone that comes to accuse him of being something less than he really is, something less powerful, something less awesome, something less supreme, and he's going to turn their attention and he's going to point to his display cabinet and he's going to say, look what I did. Look what I did. I turned this messed up church in Corinth into a trophy of my grace. I took the church in Raymond Terrace, no matter their history, stories and struggles, and I've turned them into a trophy of grace. And I've taken each one of those lives. Look at them. All polished up. The lights will be on. But you know who will be the star? Not the trophy. Not the trophy. You, that's what a trophy case does, doesn't it? It looks pretty spectacular. If you've ever gone to someone's house that has lots of trophies, and if they've got them on display, they might even have like the little pin lights on them and backlighting, and you're like, wow. But what do those trophies point to? The trophy itself, ah, nothing special really, just a brass cup or a, something worse, a bit of plastic with some gold lining on it, something that may look like something, but what does it tell you? It's not the trophy that's the big deal. It's why that trophy exists and who it belongs to. That person that award, was awarded the trophy. God is doing something at work in the life of the church in Corinth. He was doing something in the life of this church and will continue to do so, God willing. He is doing something astounding in your life. He's bringing the dead to life. And he's walking with you through the journey so that, so that he can place you in a display cabinet, as it were, metaphorically. I'm not saying that that's what heaven is, by the way. Just some great big cabinet where we all sit on shelves. 
metaphorically, what I'm saying is that we will be a part of God's great display cabinet of his grace. And then verse 8 and verse 9. If you haven't memorized this and you would like to memorize a verse, this is a good one to start with. For you are saved by grace. That's what this is about, God's grace. God's power, his mercy and riches in taking something that was maybe left out, forgotten, broken or messed up and saying, I can redeem that. God can redeem that. If he can turn a church around like Corinth, he can turn anything around. If he can take something that was broken down, messed up, and shift it and change it and redeem it so that it can sit in heavenly places with his son? That's what he'll point to. This is a cabinet, a display for the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace. You're saved by grace. And it comes through faith. Maybe this morning you're wondering, Chris, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it is that you've walked through these doors this morning and you've never tasted what it means to experience the grace of God. Well, that grace comes through faith. Not for you polishing yourself up like a self-made trophy or trying harder so that you can earn the certificate from God. That's not what this is about. This is actually about grace that comes through faith. Faith simply just saying, I'm going to trust that what God said is true. That's faith in its most basic sense. It doesn't look like it on the surface. My life seems so messed up. I can't see how God could transform this. But I want you to hear this morning, he can, he does, and he will. It's not about you deserving it. It's not about you earning it. Faith is simply saying, if God said that this will happen, I'm going to trust him that it will. I'm going to trust my life to him. I'm just going to say, God, can you take this broken life and change it? And he'll say, you bet I can. Just watch. You are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It is God's gift. A gift It's not from works. No one can boast, verse 9 finishes. There's not going to be one trophy sitting on that cabinet in ages to come who's going to say, well, guys, let me tell you the story about how I made it here to the trophy case. No one can boast. Every single one of us, you were, remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God made us alive so that you might be a display of his grace. So that he can point to your life, the life of this church, even the church in Corinth, and say, look what grace can do. Grace can transform lives and sinners and can turn them into something spectacular. So the hope that Paul holds out for the church in Corinth is the same hope that's held out for us this morning. I hate to break it to you, but we are not a better church than the one that met in Corinth. We're different. We're not better. 
Neither are we better Christians than the Christians that met in Corinth. Because their hope and our hope has always been and will always be grace. Just grace. God's grace towards sinners. The church in Corinth sits on, the God's, on God's display cabinet right now. We're able to look back at them and just go, wow, look at what God was able to do there, right? The church in Corinth is a spectacle to all the powers of the universe, not as a warning, not as a warning. We might look back at Corinth and go, well, there's a warning for us. That's not why it's there. It's an object lesson for us, not of what it looks like to be a screwed up Christian. It's an object lesson of what God's grace can do. Right? That object lesson is for us, the church in Raymond Terrace, because we sit there also. We are all trophies of God's grace. Jesus proudly points to his display cabinet. And he tells everyone who will listen, and even those who say they won't. And he says, look at what my grace can do. Just look at that. Look at this person. Look at what my grace can do. Look at this church. Look at what my grace can do. Look at the extent of my love. Look at my power to save. This is all about making Jesus look amazing. Because he is. I've enjoyed looking through the first letter to the church in Corinth. Um, Just to allay any fears, we're not going to take all of next year looking at the second letter. (laughs) We we might hold that off a a little while. Um, We're going to do some short, sharp teaching series all the way through next year, um, rather than one big long one again. But thank you for journeying along with us as we have discovered and been reminded of, and maybe for the first time ever seen, that we worship a God who is rich in mercy and loves to lavish out grace upon grace to people who need it. And that's us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Spirit, for the way that you have entrusted this word to us. Lord, take it, we pray, and let it bear fruit in our lives, individually as we sit this morning, but collectively as a church. Lord, will you take this book, this letter that was written so long ago, and let it find purchase here in Raymond Terrace, We want to be a church that celebrates the grace of Jesus Christ, both in what he's done for us and what he is doing and can do in this township of Raymond Terrace and beyond. Lord, may you transform many more by the message of grace, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.